You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We'd like to thank our friends at ZipRecruiter for their continued support of SpyCast. I'll tell you more about this great company later, but first, let's meet our guest. So we're joined today by Dan Golden, who's a journalist, author, and senior editor at ProPublica. He previously worked as managing editor for education enterprise at Bloomberg News, where he edited a series on tax inversions that in 2015 earned Bloomberg's first ever Pulitzer Prize. He won a Pulitzer himself as a reporter for the Wall Street Journal in 2004 for a series on preferences for children of alumni and donors in college admissions. He expanded that series into a critically acclaimed 2006 national bestseller, The Price of Admission. He spent 17 years as a staff reporter at the Boston Globe, including a stint on its Spotlight team, which some of you might be familiar with from the movie, and he served as senior editor for investigations at Condé Nast Portfolio. He himself was a finalist for the 2011 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for a series exposing recruiting abuses by for-profit colleges against veterans, low-income students, and the homeless. His newest book is Spy Schools how the CIA, FBI, and foreign intelligence secretly exploit America's universities. And it's out now. And if you're listening to this the day we posted it, it came out today. And a lot of these books from major publishers tend to have blurbs from famous people uh, within the world of intelligence or within the world of national security. I was pleasantly surprised to see one of the blurbs for this book from none other than John Le Carre. So if you are a fan of that, uh, it doesn't come any better than getting the master of spy fiction blurbing your book. So welcome, Dan, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks very much. I'm delighted to, to be here. So I want to start by taking a long, broad look at the relationships between intelligence and universities in the United States. It really ebbed and flowed historically here in America. Um, most people understand or they, they think they know about the early years, the close collaboration, the OSS and the CIA years. These were really bastions of Ivy League graduates. 
That's right. Uh, in the early years, as, as, as you say, there were very close collaboration between the intelligence agencies and universities. And, you know, the, the CIA and OSS uh, uh, grew to a large part out of Yale and the other Ivy League universities. And then when I was young, which is the, the 60s and the 70s, there was kind of a parting of the ways, you know, where the, uh, uh, the, the, a lot of people on campus were disturbed by some of the CIA foreign policy uh, misadventures. And uh, that, uh, there were a lot of protests on campus against CIA recruiting, and so there was a uh, kind of a breach. And then uh, over time it turned again, and uh, there was uh, some reconciliation, and particularly after 9-11, where, uh, you know, because of uh, uh, concerns about terrorism and kind of the mood of patriotism, uh, the government and the, the, the intelligence agencies and academia have become increasingly intertwined. I mean, one key moment in this was back in the 70s after the church committee hearings when uh, Harvard developed some guidelines that would have uh, kind of prevented a lot of what I write about, which is uh, sort of the on the domestic side, the, the U.S. intelligence agencies uh, doing undercover recruiting of foreign students and professors and students engaging in intelligence activity. Uh, and so on. And Harvard adopted those guidelines, but hardly any other university followed them. There was kind of a pitched battle between the Harvard president at the time and the CIA director, who was Stansfield Turner. And that was kind of the last serious effort to kind of rein in uh, U.S. intelligence clandestine activities on, on campus. And, you know, what I find uh, now in my book is that uh, with the rise of globalization, with more and more foreign students and professors on campus, uh, and with universities no longer resisting kind of the American intelligence agencies, there's a rise in both foreign and domestic espionage on campus, kind of a spy versus spy, where some of the foreigners are trying to steal research or uh, get insights uh, into U.S. policy, recruit key people. And the CIA and FBI are also trying to, uh, they're on campus trying to recruit the foreign students and professors and uh, to send them home as our agents. And, uh, very little has been written about this, but I find it to be an emerging and, you know, increasingly prevalent uh, uh, situation. Well, a lot of people may not think about universities as hotbeds of espionage, but they're really, they are fertile grounds for spying. I mean, the, the, the idealistic young uh, students uh, who may, you know, I mean, you can walk around a modern campus today and see Che t-shirts and, well, you know, the irony of a $60 Che sweatshirt uh, is wonderful. He's spinning in his grave as we speak, but you have idealistic youth who are, are open to persuasion combined with, for a lot of intelligence agencies, it's a lot easier and cheaper to recruit somebody who's 18, 19, 20 years old. That's right. I mean, they can recruit them and then guide them into the federal government rather than trying to recruit them once they're in the federal government. And, uh, you know, but there's other advantages, too. Uh, there's kind of a revolving door between the government and academia in the U.S. where, you know, somebody might be a professor one year and they might be a cabinet member the next year. So if you can uh, cultivate them while they're a professor, then you might have somebody in the government when, you know, the, uh, the other party wins the election. And then the other thing is the campuses are very open still, you know, in, in a society which is increasingly gated with more and more uh, security. I mean, you can still, in a lot of campuses, walk into, uh, you know, uh, seminar rooms, conference halls, 
even sometimes dorms, cafeterias. I mean, you, you can really mingle without nobody asking you who you are or what's your ID. So uh, there's a lot of advantages for uh, uh, intelligence services to concentrate on universities. Well, it's seemingly gotten even more prominent in the last couple of years. You have a statistic in the book showing the difference between just 2010 and 2014 and how dramatically it's, it's grown since that time. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it definitely is growing both in terms of the, the, the population of Ford students and professors. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure which, to, I mean, I have a lot of stats. I'm not sure which one you're pointing to, but uh, I believe there was one that where there was a survey of uh, advisors to foreign students, and, and they said that something like a third of them said they'd had the FBI uh, in, inquire about a student in the past year or uh, uh, reach out, you know, contact a student in the past year. So that was a pretty impressive statistic to me. Uh, uh, which one are you pointing? Yeah, the one I was getting at about academic solicitation. So people on campuses that have been attempted to be recruited. I know that was awkward me saying that. Uh, from 2010, it was 8% of all spying efforts were focused on students and campuses in 2010 to up to 24%. So a threefold increase by 2014. I mean, it seems a dramatic change in the last couple of years. Yeah, it definitely does seem dramatic. And, you know, I give a whole variety of examples in the book about, about uh, of, of recruiting of, of professors and, and students, uh, you know, uh, and activities by both domestic and, and foreign espionage. You know, there's, there's one, uh, just, you know, give some of the highlights. Uh, there's one chapter about a Chinese graduate student at, at Duke who, who basically, uh, you know, poached some Pentagon-funded invisibility research and uh, then went back to China uh, with government help there, uh, started his own uh, institute and company and became a billionaire. And, you know, Duke, uh, the, the professor, kind of realized too late what this guy was up to. The, the student had, you know, invited Chinese scientists to come in and photograph the equipment. He deceived the professor into making a commitment to go to China and explain his research there. Uh, the, the other people in the lab at Duke were finding that uh, all of a sudden their, you know, their research was, was uh, being, uh, you know, spouted by people in China. And, uh, you know, Duke kind of realized too late what was going on. They took away the guy's key to the, uh, the lab, and they made sure that he didn't get another job in the U.S., but uh, it was kind of too late. I mean, that's, that's one story in, in there that's never been told before. Um, another, I, I talk about a... a uh, Puerto Rican woman uh, at uh, SICE, you know, Johns Hopkins School for Advanced International Studies, was working for Cuban intelligence there, uh, recruited a classmate, uh, also of Puerto Rican background, who became, uh, uh, you know, Cuba's most influential spy ever in the federal government and the DIA. And the, the, the woman who did the recruiting, Marta Velasquez, I traced her back to Sweden. She's under indictment in the U.S. and she's teaching public high school in Sweden and, and can't be extradited. And then uh, also talk about uh, this school in China, uh, the University of International Relations, which uh, is uh, it seems like a perfectly normal foreign relations school, but actually it's overseen and partly funded by uh, China's uh, security ministry, which handles intelligence, and uh, it, it's constantly trying to uh, partner with Western universities at colleges that may or may not understand what its function really is. And it's, it's a way for them to send their students to get experience in the U.S. and other Western countries. And I go through their partnership with this one uh, little liberal arts college in Ohio, Marietta, where 
you know, they exchange faculty and, and uh, the administrators have visited each other and, and uh, it's quite a close relationship and Marietta turns a blind eye to the uh, uh, unpleasant sort of espionage aspects of this because uh, the uh, university in China helps them get full paying Chinese students and the school needs the money. So it just, there's all kinds of contexts in which it, it arises and uh, I try and, you know, I provide a bunch of fresh examples and fresh analysis. Let me let me ask you about this because a lot of the information that you you talk about is not classified. It's not like these are Chinese students that are infiltrating DARPA or the Pentagon. A lot of this is just is it's just university fundamental research. So why even target that stuff? It it seems like we've now gone beyond, you know, having to worry about uh, you know, top secret uh, you know, aerospace engineering plans being stolen to basic science at the university level? Yeah, that, that's a good question. That puzzled me, too, and uh, until I, I interviewed you about it. <laughs> and you gave me a great uh, explanation, which I hadn't thought of, which is, uh, you know, if you're, you know, working in a, uh, you know, U.S. lab, even on unclassified material, or you're finding out about it, um, you get to, uh, you learn about the process. So you learn what mistakes to avoid. You learn how to, how to do this research quicker. And uh, then you can, you know, replicate it and, and publish fast and, and get the acclaim for that. So, I mean, it, it saves a lot of time and effort and, and pays big dividends to go after even, uh, you know, open, unclassified research. And uh, so it's well worth a foreign country's time to get the jump on us that way. Well, in some cases, things are what we call pre-classified also, where they're not classified yet because there's no military application, but there may be at some point. That's right. Like in this example of the Chinese graduate student at Duke, the research was about uh, making an invisibility cloak. And at the time, it wasn't classified yet, but it was funded by the Pentagon. And of course, the eventual goal was to be able to make American weapons invisible, you know, drones and planes and tanks and so on. And so uh, when one of the articles based on this research appeared, and it cited funding not just from the Pentagon, but from, you know, various Chinese government sources, uh, the U.S. military, uh, or I should say the, the, the Pentagon, was, uh, was very upset, and they went to Duke and said, what's going on here? And that kind of led to the gradual unraveling of the, the arrangement I described. And in, and in many aspects, this isn't against the law. I mean, it's against certain things like in, 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 um, intellectual property and, and copyright, but the espionage laws themselves of the United States don't protect a lot of this unclassified information. That's right, uh, and it's, uh, uh, it is kind of a gray area, and I mean, one of the things that universities need to do is to just be more cognizant of these dangers, you know, I mean, uh, in general, uh, there's, there are intellectual property rules that could help them that they don't necessarily pay a lot of attention to, or individual uh, faculty may not. Um, when in this case, they were collaborating with, with Chinese scientists, there was not a written collaboration document, you know, spelling out, here's our contract, you know, here's the research, here's what we will share, and here's what we won't share, and here's what we can do, and here's what we can't do. So in the absence of that, it's kind of uh, the absence of rules and guidelines, you know, not just laws, um, it's very easy to exploit. Let's take some countries specifically, and then we'll turn to the United States, just kind of breaking some of the the worst actors down. And we'll start, obviously, with China, uh, because on face to some, it may come across as racist to have this much emphasis on China, or at least xenophobic. Um, but they are head 
and shoulders above everyone else when it comes to this kind of stealing of intellectual property? Well, certainly China popped up the most in my, my research. And uh, I think that, uh, I mean, I got the impression, and I'm not an expert on any specific country, but I certainly got the impression that China made a conscious policy decision to uh, basically um, um, improve its scientific status to catch up to you know, the United States and other uh, powers in that area by uh, finding out what their research was and bringing it home rather than sort of developing it in a vacuum on its own. I mean, I think this was one of the big reasons why uh, China in the 1970s uh, uh, decided after being closed for so long to, uh, you know, send students to the U.S. and why it, you know, sent so many students. The idea was, you know, don't come home empty-handed. Now, of course, in many ways that can be very legitimate. They learn from American professors. They, they, they're great students, and, and therefore uh, you get, uh, you know, and they, they rightfully uh, be, go home with a gr- great education. But in other cases, uh, maybe it's a little bit more than that. And... Um, China also has these talent programs, like the 100 Talents Program, the 1,000 Talents Program, which are are kind of, they could be seen as an incentive for inappropriate kind of, you know, appropriating of research. What they do is essentially they offer uh, massive incentives to uh, foreign scientists, often those of Chinese descent uh, in the U.S. and other countries, to come back to China. And, they, you know, then they do it on, on the basis of uh, merit and who has sort of the most to offer. So it can create kind of a competition among uh, people of Chinese uh, heritage overseas. Oh, you know, let, I got to bring them back some really eye-catching research if, I'm, if I can, you know, qualify for this wonderful program that provides a big salary and great lab facilities and, uh, uh, you know, housing for my family and, and the best medical care and so on. So there's kind of an incentive, again, to uh, come back with something. Well, as you talk about, a lot of these students are cream of the crop, right? They're, they're some of the best researchers in the world. They deserve to go to these Ivy League schools. But it, these programs, like the talent programs, also, as you speak about, they incentivize researchers who are on the fringe, who might not be all that high level, to essentially try to cheat their way by stealing things, by, by uh, kind of going around the system in order to get these jobs back in China. That's right. You put it very well. I mean, in general, the talent programs have not been able to attract the absolute, you know, best scientists in the U.S., whether they're Chinese heritage or not. You know, if you're a, uh, a full professor with a chair at, uh, you know, Princeton or MIT or something, that's a pretty nice situation already, and you probably don't want to leave. And they have you know, families here and established lives and so on. So it's often, as you say, the people who are on on the edge try, trying to make their careers, maybe haven't been able to get a tenured professorship, uh, who it gives a big incentive to, uh, you know, uh, uh, cut, uh, you know, to, to, make a sh- to make shortcuts and go home with research that they didn't actually do. And, and even for some of the better students, and this is something that, again, it will sound familiar to you because it may have been part of a conversation that we had. Um, the better students who can go to better schools, go to grad school legitimately at the Harvards and the Yales and the Ivies of the world, a U.S.-based degree puts them in prime position to do real espionage work for the Chinese government. 
Yeah, I think that that's uh, that that that's also uh, uh, the case. I mean, it's uh, it legitimizes you in the U.S. right to have a degree from an American university, and and in some cases, uh, uh, it's um, a U- U.S. university is also a great place to be uh, to be seeking thing information from. I mean, I describe one case in my in my book. I think it was the Wentong Kai case where, you know, he was getting his Ph.D. in. He was asking for equipment and materials of you know that had absolutely nothing to do with his particular field of study. But you know, if you're writing from a university and you're a PhD candidate and you're asking for a certain kind of uh, scientific equipment, um, not a lot of eyebrows are going to go up. And so it's it lends a kind of automatic uh, you know enhancement of prestige. Let's talk a little bit about the response to this from the U.S. government. And this is not as clean as we'd like it to be. You talk a lot in the book about how this crosses a bit of a line, a hazy gray area between domestic intelligence, the purview of the FBI, and foreign intelligence, the purview of the CIA, and the kind of turf war that has popped up in combating some of this between these two agencies. Yeah, well, of course, the CIA operates in the U.S. as well under its National uh, Resources Division. And so often the CIA and FBI uh, may find themselves uh, trying to recruit the same foreign visiting scholar or graduate student or researcher. And, uh, you know, they they have stepped on each other's toes historically uh, quite a bit. I mean, uh, you know, I, I wasn't focusing so much on that turf war, but it's, you know, it's definitely there. And, uh, well, for example, but I mean, I just pop came across it, for example, in the, the, the news story I did that led to this book where I was writing about a professor at um, the University of South Florida, uh, born in China, uh, went to the school I mentioned that's funded by the uh, uh, Ministry of Security in China, thus came to the U.S., was of interest to the FBI, uh, had some dealings with the FBI at Princeton, then became a professor at South Florida, got into trouble there in terms of finagling of expenses and whatnot. And, and, and you know, the FBI went to him and said, uh, you know, you kind of got two choices. You can lose your tenured professorship and go to prison for fraud, or you can spy on China for us or on the Confucius Institutes, which are these China-funded institutes on various campuses. And he was running the one at, at South Florida. And what, was, what interested me, though, uh, was that, I mean, aside from the whole story, was I interviewed uh, one of the former administrators at South Florida, and uh, she, t- you know, she told me that, you know, U.S. intelligence came to her to, to vouch for this guy because essentially they wanted the university to to help in, uh, uh, you know, in sort of encouraging his espionage activities. They wanted, for example, they wanted the university to set up a a uh, base, uh, a campus in in China as as a base for his spying. And, you know, an FBI agent and a CIA uh, officer both called on this administrator. So this was a case where, you know, the FBI and the CIA both had clearly had an interest. And, uh, you know, the FBI was dealing with a guy in this country and on the Confucius Institute aspect. And probably if they succeeded in getting a branch campus set up overseas and sent them over there, the, you know, the CIA would probably take over handling them. So, you know, they, they are uh, they, they both have some uh, stake in the game. Let me, let me ask you something you mentioned in the book about the peace dividend, and this is something that we talk a lot about here in the museum itself. Most people think of the peace dividend at the end of the Cold War as a huge slashing of the military budget, uh, which it was, but potentially even more dramatic cutting 
to the intelligence budget, both for human intelligence and foreign intelligence and counterintelligence. Well, unfortunately, in the 1990s, this is a time when a lot of these foreign students are coming to the United States. Unfortunately, the same time that we're cutting our ability to do counterintelligence. Yeah, and I think you know some people, uh, some old hands in the in the FBI, were very concerned about that at the time and wanted to, uh, you know, cap foreign enrollment and and other measures because uh, they weren't able to do uh, enough counterintelligence. I mean, uh, again, I'm not I'm not sure I would agree with with the, with that idea because I mean I, there are a lot of benefits to the the globalization here as well as the you know, the side effect of espionage, but um, certainly it, it raised some, some eyebrows. Not only are foreign students coming to the United States who potentially could be doing uh, either straight-up espionage or, or stealing intellectual property, but a lot of Americans are going abroad now more than they ever have before. Uh, is this a direct result of the opening of campuses overseas by, what, dozens of American colleges? Yeah, I think that uh, American universities uh, are, are very, I mean, they, they want to be international, you know, by and large. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. I mean, they want to extend their, their brand and their reputation and bring in, you know, bright students and professors. Uh, there's also a strong financial motivation. Uh, they want uh, foreign students who will pay, uh, you know, full tuition. Uh, to come to the U.S. and also many of these branches overseas are subsidized by those countries that are eager to get a taste of American education so they can open a branch overseas at uh, relatively little expense and uh, develop, you know, uh, uh, future alumni and alumni donors there. I mean, these branches tend to open in countries that have a, a bit of wealth to them, like, you know, the, the, the countries in the Middle East and the, and the Gulf uh, or... Uh, uh, China, uh, you know, they, they tend to be not be opening, you know, in, uh, you know, war-torn African countries. Right. So, uh, you know, th- so there's incentives there, and a lot of them have study abroad programs, and, and you know, the federal government has supported this effort and set various goals for how many students should go overseas. And, and again, I'm, I'm not ag- against that as a general policy. I just think that maybe there should be a keener eye paid to some of the uh, collateral damage, which could be uh, efforts to recruit some of these uh, students and the, you know, the professors or grad students who accompany them by these foreign countries or even trap them in some way. I mean, we already talked, I mean, these tend to be the cream of the crop students, you know, the ones that are going overseas to China or other places uh, uh, tend to be the better ones who want some kind of international job in the future. I mean, it seems like an incredibly fertile ground for recruitment. You're already kind of, most people don't go to these countries unless they already have an interest, uh, an affinity toward these areas. And and that seems to be kind of the opening that a lot of uh, these countries' intelligence agencies need to try to recruit people. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of people go overseas uh, to improve their language skills. And obviously somebody with, with very good language skills for, you know, a variety of you know, uh, bilingual or trilingual and very fluent is of appeal to intelligence agencies, you know. And uh, I tell the story in the book. Now, this is one, you know, most of the cases in the book are never told. This one has been, you know, was covered at the time, but I go into it in more detail, of uh, Glenn Duffy Shriver, who was a student from uh, Grand Valley State in Michigan who went to China on uh, study abroad programs and uh, 
ultimately, uh, sort of right after college, when he went back to China, was recruited by Chinese intelligence. You know, he kind of answered an ad to write an essay, and of course was placed by by Chinese intelligence. And they uh, they paid him uh, quite a bit of money. I think ultimately about seventy five thousand dollars to try and penetrate uh, the uh, U.S. intelligence and the CIA and. Ultimately, he was he was caught and arrested, and the FBI had told his story in a movie called Game of Pawns. And I think, you know, the FBI was very concerned that, uh, you know, what this might portend for other students. I mean, Shriver, you know, he was a, he was a normal kid. He was a good student. He wasn't a you know, cream of the crop type student, and uh, you know, it was kind of like the average American. If they could recruit any him, they could might be trying to recruit any student. And they, they found that China did indeed have a sort of intelligence unit devoted to uh, monitoring, uh, you know, Western students in China. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that raised their alarms. They made that movie. Now, in some cases, the movie's a bit, some of it's a bit exaggerated. And uh, if you watch it, probably on YouTube, you'll hear some kind of ominous music and a bit of a, you know, hokey uh, narrative at times. But uh, nonetheless, it underscores that this is a significant issue. Well, I mean, the kid wanted to get into the CIA. I mean, that on the on the instructions of Chinese intelligence. I mean, that um, that's what we talked about in the very beginning of grooming these people young and then putting them into positions is much easier than trying to recruit a mid-level or a senior analyst that's already at CIA. That's absolutely right. And, and you know, he was a bit, um, I'd say, maybe a bit conceited or confident in his own abilities and. You know, in his own mind, he was saying, "I'll take this money, and then I won't, uh, I won't do anything for them, and I'll have the last laugh." But of course, that's not the way it really works. Once you know, once they've paid you, they own you, and uh, you know, he didn't really realize that, and uh, so he got, uh, you know, it was big trouble. He ended up going to to prison for several years, and uh, uh, you know, learned that it's not as not as easy <laughs> as he thought it was. We'll have more with Dan in just one minute, but let me take a moment to talk about ZipRecruiter. As I've told you before, ZipRecruiter is a company that was founded by a group of guys who worked in the tech industry and with startups and realized the absolute worst thing about running an organization was a process of hiring people. But what if hiring could be easier, more streamlined, less time consuming? So even when you're busy, you could still be smart about the way you hire. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting, so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you, it finds them. And this is a really cool concept. You can even get a head start on the interview process by adding screening questions to your job post to help identify the most qualified candidates. So you don't have to waste time sorting through a stack of resumes to find the perfect fit. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy to use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish all in one place. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. 
a lot of, some countries actually use universities here in the United States because they have no formal relations with the United States. I mean, Iran is a good example of this, where there's no embassies here, uh, and they use their student networks to actually do their intelligence work. That's right. Of course, the number of Iranian students in the U.S. has been increasing, although, um, you know, depending on where things finally shake out on the travel ban, that, that um, you know, that, that would affect where that ends up. But yeah, in Iran, for Iranians, you're right, so they don't have embassies, and so uh, whatever information they gather is going to be pretty much picked up by students and researchers and people on campus. My my hometown is South Florida, so Cuba always you know perks my interest. And in South Florida is ground zero for a lot of uh, the efforts of Cuban intelligence, including two major universities in Miami, Florida International University and the University of Miami. Uh, and so a lot of people may be thinking South Florida when they think of Cuba. We've already talked about the fact that right here in Washington D.C. was a major hub of Cubans trying to infiltrate American universities, and that's at Hopkins uh, SAIS, uh, where Montez and even Kendall Myers uh, were recruited to spy for the Cubans. Yeah, and I mean, what, what I found fascinating was uh, there was Marta Rita Velasquez, who was, uh, as I mentioned, was recruited to uh, spy for Cuba, and she in turn recruited Montez when they were classmates at SICE. And uh, uh, the interesting thing about them both is, is the Puerto Rican background. I hadn't realized, uh, it's not my area of specialty, you know, kind of the affinities between Puerto Rico and, and Cuba, the, the Puerto Rican independence movement, uh, you know, kind of looked to Cuba, Cuba and the Castro regime for a model to, as a kind of way to pursue your own path under the shadow of, you know, the, the U.S. hegemony. And uh, so, uh, you know, Cuba, very few Cuban students come to the U.S., so they can't really, couldn't really use students, but uh, instead uh, using Puerto Rican students. And, of course, uh, part of the United States. And uh, so uh, I think it, it, that's been very effective. Plus, as you mentioned, the students who just uh, over the years admired Castro, admired Che Guevara, uh, you know, thought of, uh, you know, thought of them as kind of uh, wonderful progressive models. And so uh, they had a bunch of, uh, you know, sympathetic ears and, and people who they could recruit and have been quite effective. Well, let's, let's round this up by talking about the Russians. Uh, people might remember uh, now seven years ago when 10 Russian spies were arrested here in the United States, now called the Russian 10. Um, several of them were actually heavily involved with American universities. That's right. Most of them were actually were, were students there, or I think teaching classes in a, in a couple exa- examples. And, uh, uh, you know, I have, I have an interesting, uh, actually, some stuff in my book about sort of Russian uh, spying on campus and uh, uh, including an interview with a professor at kind of a leading American university who talks about how he was giving a, uh, a panel at, uh, at his university and approached by Russian uh, diplomat, turned out to be Russian intelligence, and then uh, he went to the FBI about it and they told this guy to keep meeting with the the Russian spy, and so the guy became kind of a double agent, you know, wrote some papers for the, the Russians. They, they paid him with vodka and an expensive watch and finally some money, and it's an, it's an interesting tale. But, yes, they're very active. Now, the other thing to point out, just to bring this back to the domestic side for a minute, is that of those 10 in that, that scandal you mentioned, one of them was a student in the Harvard Kennedy School mid-career program, and his real name was Andrei Bezrukov or something like that, and his... Uh, 
but he took the name Donald Heathfield and pretended to be Canadian. And when this came out, you know, there was a big hue and cry, you know, Russian spy undercover at the Kennedy School. But I have a chapter on sort of CIA activity at the Kennedy School in this same mid-career program, which is predominantly foreign. Maybe two-thirds of the people in the mid-career program are foreign business people, government officials, uh, other sort of future leaders. And um, what, what I show is that there's also a long line of CIA uh, clandestine officers who go to the mid-career program undercover. Now, they use their real names, unlike uh, Bezrukov, but uh, they use the, the same covers they use overseas. So if overseas they're in an embassy uh, uh, kind of posing as a political officer, they identify themselves at the, the Kennedy School as a political officer. And, uh, you know, this is now they're not supposed to formally recruit their classmates, but there's nothing wrong with getting to know them and being friendly and, you know, taking a foreign classmate out for, you know, a beer at the Charlie's Kitchen. And uh, so it's interesting, uh, you know, that mid-career program is a hub both for foreign spies, including Russians, and for American spies. And it's kind of like you never really know who you're sitting next to. Right. Well, let's just, fo- let's just focus to that part of the book. Half the book focuses on the American intelligence agency's efforts uh, to use the U.S. educational system to their benefit. And the Kennedy School is, is a key part of this, and anyone following the news in the last couple of weeks would have seen the influence that CIA, even current CIA, but also former CIA, has over what the Kennedy School is doing when the uh, Belfer Center and the Kennedy School reached out to uh, former leaker Chelsea Manning uh, to be a fellow there. That's right. The Kennedy School invited her to be a fellow, and then there was uh, a protest from uh, Morell and other uh CIA and former CIA people, and uh, they rescinded the invitation. And uh, it, um, to me, it was testimony of just how close the ties are between the Kennedy School and the CIA that uh, it, it would succumb to that kind of pressure, whatever the the merits you might think or, or lack of merits of inviting Chelsea Manning in the first place. Um, and I think there are these connections, like the the mid-career program enrollment. Uh, I mean, obviously, a lot of graduates of the Kennedy School. Uh, the CIA may want to, you know, recruit them for jobs there, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. The, a lot of uh, speakers from the CIA at, at the Kennedy School funding for programs. I described this program there called the Reconati Kaplan Fellowship, which is uh, for uh, CIA analysts, uh, so uh, as well as from other countries. I think the U.S. and France and Israel all send people to that program. So there's just a there's. You know, people at the Kennedy School who are on CIA advisory boards and, uh, you know, General Petraeus has a, a relationship with the Kennedy School. And so, on. so there's just a myriad, uh, you know, of ties, including the, the mid-career program one, which is clandestine, and many others that are perfectly uh, open and above board. And I think all taken together made it, uh, you know, very difficult for the Kennedy School to withstand pressure on it. And on the CIA side, it probably saw this as a kind of betrayal by an institution that it considers to be a, uh, you know, a close working partner. I, I think a lot of people may be surprised uh, to know what kind of institutions exist today uh, that really kind of codify this relationship between the intelligence agencies and the universities. And one of them is the National Security Higher Education Board. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because even I, I'd heard of this, I mean, coming from a university and being in the national security field, I had heard of this, but I didn't know as deep as it went. 
Yeah, this it's good National Security Higher Education Advisory Board, and it's been around now maybe a dozen years or a few more. Yeah, I'd say about a dozen, and uh, it was basically set up by Graham Spanier uh, when he was president of, of Penn State, and he was concerned that intelligence agencies were sort of coming on campus without his knowing about it, sort of going in the back door and interviewing people or recruiting people, and he wanted to be informed. And first he had meetings about this at Penn State, and this sort of morphed uh, into a national thing where, you know, there's, there's maybe 20 or 25 college presidents and other sort of significant figures in academia on the board, and they go to, uh, they, they essentially meet with CIA and FBI, you know, leaders uh, uh, a few times a year and, and get briefed on the key issues. And, uh, and in return, I think they're much more amenable than, the college presidents of my youth would have been to let the agencies, uh, let the CIA and FBI and other intelligence agencies come onto campus and do pretty much what they want. And, uh, yeah, so, so that's basically what NSHEEB does. And, and Spanier became kind of a proselytizer for this. You know, he went around the, the country and he'd give speeches and, to academic audiences and he'd show them his ACLU card to show that he was as much a liberal as anybody else. And then He'd tell them that the FBI and CIA had turned over a new leaf and, and that uh, it was fine to work with them now. And, and then, and, you know, if, if there was a university that wasn't, that the CIA wanted to approach some people there, he might make a call to the president there and clear the path. So he played quite a, quite a role in this. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I think that, you know, his motives were admirable, and in some ways what he did was, was too. But I think the, the problem was that his idea was that uh, you know, once he did this, the, the, the CIA and the FBI wouldn't go in through the back door anymore. They'd go in through the front door because he was opening the front door. But my sense is, in reality, they still go through the back door when they feel like it. So it's, he just gave them another door rather than kind of uh, uh, cleaning up the process the way he wanted to. How, mu- how much does the competition to become what's known as a Center for Academic Excellence uh, way on how universities deal directly with the government and intelligence agencies. Well, I think anytime there's there's uh, funding attached to a uh, to a program, uh, universities are going to want to bid for it, you know, and and that just adds to the kind of web of ties that I mentioned before. And certainly, there's there's a lot more pots of funding and uh, uh, available from the intelligence community in various ways to academia than there used to be at a time when academia is. Uh, you know, uh, maybe not getting as much money as it once did from some other sources, you know, such as in the case of public universities, state governments, which are, you know, struggling financially. So, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's usually, you know, spoken or unspoken, uh, you know, strings uh, attached to money. And, and even if there aren't, you know, it sort of creates working relationships. And uh, so I think it would, the, those centers that would fit into that pattern. I think that would also be true for IARPA, which, I mean, for those of you know the generation prior to ours, um, you know, thinking of going to school during the Vietnam era and protesting Dow Chemical at the University of Wisconsin and baking Agent Orange during Vietnam, uh, these were so overt that it was hard not to see where the shenanigans were taking place. And I, I, I know a lot of people at IARPA. I think they do an amazing job, but they're certainly bringing money to these universities and the you know tens of millions of dollars that it, it's impossible to argue that they're not inextricably linked 
once they're taking on this much financing from the government? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes to a relatively deep question, which everybody would have their own view on, which is um, to what extent are American universities sort of arms of the government and national institutions, and to what extent are they international institutions? I mean, in a way, you know, what we're talking about is kind of, you know, in the big picture, it's somewhat of the same issues that you, you, you think about in relation to Brexit or the, or, the, or the Trump campaign or the French election, the sort of issue of nationalism versus globalization. I mean, universities, in a lot of ways, I mean, they're global structures. I mean, they don't, they don't see national boundaries. You know, a great thinker is a great thinker, and we want to bring him in to teach whether, you know, he comes from... Uh, you know, India or Kenya or France or the United States. And, and now it's somewhat different for public universities, state universities, because they're often bound to have a certain percentage of their students to be from their home state. But in, in general, you know, the, 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 if, I think if you ask most professors, their concept of a university would be kind of an international meeting place where, you know, bright minds of all countries come to learn and teach and, and exchange ideas for the, for the mutual benefit of mankind. But of course, an, an intelligence service is concerned about the benefit of their particular country and, and gaining an advantage there. So it's kind of, uh, you know, in a way that they're exploiting the kind of global openness of, of universities. And, and it, it, it raises questions about what exactly is the role of, you know, a global institution in a particular country. Well, it may sound quaint to some people, but there's also the, the, the foundational idea of a free and open exchange of ideas at a university. I mean, that's, that's kind of how they were designed back centuries ago of a place where you could say what you wanted to say and learn what you wanted to learn and have conversations with, like, you know, people maybe like-minded, maybe not so much. Right, and that's why the, the Kennedy School uh, activity of, of undercover CIA officers there, I find it bothersome. I mean, the, you know, the other side of the equation there is, um, look, uh, you can't have somebody who's undercover in, you know, Namibia come back to Cambridge and, and be open about being a CIA officer. Sooner or later, word will get back to Namibia, you know. So they have to be undercover if they go there. On the other hand, you know, the classroom is supposed to be kind of a sacrosanct place where, you know, people, uh, you know, are candid about their experiences and their opinions and, and, and their uh, uh, values. And, um, you know, if, 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 you see, if, if some of the people in the classroom, particularly in a mid-career program where the whole idea is to sort of share your national your experience with people from other countries, if, if you're there and you, you, you've got a false experience that you have to be talking about, you know, if you're there under a deception, I think it goes, to, it raises questions about, you know, what's, what, what, is the, what is education about? You know, is this really education? Is this what a classroom should be? So uh, you're right. I mean, the, the, you know, we've, there's a bunch of sort of bedrock kind of values and conceptions here that this touches on. Yeah, you know, I understand why they do it, and I, and I, I get the, the, the background behind it. It, it. As a former educator, I guess a current educator, but a former university educator, it does rub me the wrong way a little bit. Um, something that doesn't as much uh, is the uh, agency staging of academic conferences uh, in different places around the world. I, I see this as somewhat brilliant. Can you talk a little bit about what's happening there? Yeah, what I found there is that... Uh, the agency, and, and I agree, it's brilliant. You know, they uh, uh, they they go to they send people to conferences just like 
other intelligence services do. And on occasion, they, they stage their own, you know, through an intermediary. The, the CIA will, will fund a conference in a, in a foreign country. And, and the ones I looked at, the intent was essentially, this, this was before the Iranian nuclear agreement, uh, the intent was to lure Iranian nuclear scientists out of Iran to a place where they could approach them and ask them to defect to the U.S. And uh, so they would... They would uh, you know, arrange for a conference to be held on a subject that was, you know, the, the peaceful version of whatever the Iranian nuclear scientists specialized in, something about a peaceful use of nuclear power that would accord with the target scientist's research interests, and then, you know, set up a conference about it, invite the guy to speak. Now, Iran would often send the scientists because they wanted to show that, that they were interested in peaceful nuclear power, and uh, the, 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 the guy would show up with... Uh, you know, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, handlers, and uh, be a pro- and the CIA would then uh, separate him from his handlers, maybe poisoning their food a little bit. Yeah, the, the, uh, paying off the cooks to give them, give them uh, stomach issues. Yeah, give them stomach issues or some other way. Uh, or in one example, just going to the hotel room after the, uh, the guards were asleep while the, the scientist was still awake, and uh, then, you know, pitch the guy to defect. Uh, with, uh, you know, the kind of threat that, you know, something dire might eventually happen to him if he didn't. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that they did, were able to, to recruit some scientists this way to defect. And, uh, I mean, I think, you know, it is brilliant. I mean, the, the one uh, concern would be, you know, what about all the other academics there who are giving speeches at the conference who are there as window dressing? <laughs> I mean, you know, they are kind of being used now. You know, they don't know that they're being used, and I'm sure they're happy to give their speech. And for all I know, uh, you know, maybe they, they get their speech published in a, you know, compendium of the symposia or something. But it is, uh, it is kind of uh, exploiting quite a few, uh, you know, unaware academics. Well, and, and bringing some of these scientists out or other or foreign assets brings us back to the relationship between the agencies and the universities because one of the key enticements that the agency can give somebody willing to defect is the ability to place their kids or them in a top-notch American university. Yeah, and I should mention, by the way, that, of course, the reason for this conference is that it's very hard to recruit an Iranian nuclear scientist in Tehran. So you're better off if you can hold the conference in Europe someplace, you know, then, uh, you know, you have a much better shot. But, yes, you're totally right. And one, one of the examples I give was an Iranian nuclear scientist. Now, this guy, I don't think they recruited at a conference, but... They recruited him to defect, and, and he said, uh, you know, I will on one condition, which is, uh, you know, I want to pursue a doctorate in MIT. And, you know, the way I, I was told it, uh, you know, the CIA then approached MIT, and this guy had come out of Iran in a hurry, so he just uh, didn't have all his papers and his credentials. And, and MIT said, well, you know, this is highly improper. He doesn't have the, you know, the transcripts that we need and so on. And the CIA said, you know, come on. And, and uh, so the M- MIT then got a bunch of, you know, oral, uh, you know, set up sort of an oral committee of, of you know, gray beards, and uh, they interviewed the guy, found him to be, uh, you know, very bright and knowledgeable, and uh, he ended up uh, pursuing his doctorate at MIT as he had wished. And, you know, more broadly, yes, I mean, there's a lot of times when the CIA might have a uh, asset overseas who, uh, you, you know, might not want to be paid in 
you know, American dollars, because it might look odd, might want to be paid by having his son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter, nephew, niece, whatever, admitted to an American university. And, uh, you know, and, and this, and perhaps with the tuition paid for. And, yeah, the CIA, I think, you know, arranges those kind of deals on, on occasion. Let's talk about the, the Iran nuclear scientists. Is it fair to say this helped? I mean, it's impossible to know, obviously. But is it, is it from your research, is it, is it fair to say there's a chance that this hurt the Iranian nuclear program? Uh, well, my sources who told me about it believe that it did. Now, I, I mean... You know, I'm, I'm a uh, basically a higher education reporter who took an interest in this topic, and I'm not an expert on the Iranian nuclear program, so I can't say independently of my own knowledge whether it did or it didn't. But, you know, I think the reason that my sources discussed this was because they felt that um, it was kind of a uh, uh, helpful in... Uh, you know, uh, slowing Iran's development of, you know, nuclear weapons and thus, you know, should be told to the public. So let me ask you to wrap this up. Let me talk about today and moving forward. Do you see this trend increasing? Do you see it staying the same? Do you do you see your book as a wake-up call and maybe some changes being made? Uh, how does the, a lot of questions all at once here. Uh, how does the new administration and their policies on immigration and, and people coming to the United States potentially change this? The big, broad, let me sum it all up and say, what do you see us going in 10 years? Well, uh, I mean, that's a good question. I'm, I'm you know, not a soothsayer, but, I mean, there's a few things that seem, you know, it seems we might be able to hazard guesses on. I mean, uh, in terms of the current administration, uh, my sense is President Trump is kind of a, uh, you know, kind of a boon to the uh, espionage industry because, He's kind of uh, unpredictable and, uh, you know, bellicose. And therefore, my guess would be that a lot of intelligence services of other countries, both friend and foe, are pretty desperate to find out what he actually intends to do. And that would mean, um, you know, trying to use intelligence to find out. And that would be on campus as well as off. And in terms of the the foreign students and uh, uh foreign scholars and so on on campus. As I mentioned, it's not totally clear yet, I think, how the travel ban would affect the numbers, but of course that would primarily be Iran of the countries that would be affected. It wouldn't affect China, for example, or Russia. And um, I think that, you know, probably under Trump there's not a great deal of concern in the administration for the civil liberties of foreign students and graduate students. And so the recruiting of them, I'm sure, could go on apace. There's not, you know, they're not going to limit the the ability of, in, of American intelligence to recruit on campus and, and clandestinely. So uh, I think um, I'd I'd love to see my book be a wake up call. As I mentioned, uh, uh, universities could take more actions on their own. They could have, you know, to protect their research, they could have collaboration agreements, they could, uh, you know, spend more time uh, protecting intellectual property. Well, sorry to, sorry to interrupt, let me, let me, because you are a higher education reporter, so from the university side, do you see any changes taking place? I mean, are, are, from the people that you've talked to, is this something that major universities, whether they're state schools or some of the IVs or private schools, are they starting to take this more seriously because of some of the publicized cases of the Chinese or anybody else? I think if they are, it's very slow or minimal. I mean, I think um, their view would be 
kind of it's somebody else's problem. And I think that um, they, you know, they are very bent on developing international uh, relationships. So, you know, if if, if you want to open a campus in China, you might not want to raise a ruckus about a student who you think might be spying for China. So, you know, then you might not, uh, you know, revoke his degree or not award him a degree or something, which, are, you know, those, so those kind of stern actions might, might look awkward. And on the U.S. side, you know, that they're reluctant to bite the hand that feeds them, as we've discussed, the various funding that's coming in. So I think that, um, in general, it's not, you know, high on their radar screen. Maybe uh, I'd like to see, I hope my book will change that, because... I think it is a significant issue, and I think, you know, uh, both on the foreign and domestic side, and I'd, I'd like to see them, uh, you know, take it up again. Well, the book itself is called Spy Schools, How the CIA, FBI, and Foreign Intelligence Secretly Exploit America's Universities. It is out now. I highly recommend it, uh, not just because I'm in it, and if you don't believe me, John LaCrae likes it too. So thank you, Dan, uh, for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. We truly appreciate it. Thanks so much, Vince. I really appreciate it. Great, great questions. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. We'd like to thank ZipRecruiter for continuing to support the SpyCast family. Remember, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com SpyCast. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.